Hello, and welcome to Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist, or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, I'm in the North Wales workshop of Junko Mori. The Japanese-born artist is renowned for her extraordinary work in metal that aggregates hundreds of individually forged elements to create pieces that are often inspired by nature in general and cell division in particular. As she has said, the uncontrollable beauty is the core of my concept. Over the years, Mori, who is represented by the gallery Adrian Sassoon, has exhibited in places such as the Saatchi Gallery, the V&A and at Salon in New York. In March, you'll be able to see her work at TFAF in Maastricht. She's also been involved in shows and residencies with other artists, most notably Kate Malone at the Harley Gallery in Nottinghamshire. Junko, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for coming. Can we kick off by talking about your studio? We're here in North Wales, which is an hour's drive from Bangor. How did we end up here? Yes, uh, we basically, yeah, my husband and I met in Manchester, and that was actually Crafts Council setting up, like a type of setting up grants called Next Move. And then, so we, I, my first studio in Manchester, and then, but um, when I kind of, my career kind of settled a little bit, and then my work started selling, I realized it sort of I need a little bit more space, um, time in my head. And so I, and also we used to come to this region for surfing and uh, bodyboarding. That was right. the main reason, to be honest. Yeah. So and, you, came, you came for the surf? Yeah. Yeah. Sea, beach, and, and mountains as well. So, and also if, you know, renting and buying a house in city, London's just impossible Manchester is also that time expensive so I realized if I move down this area I get financially probably quarter of money I need that means I need to earn quarter amount of money <laughs> that means I can do two-thirds of you know time to create that much finance I can do whatever I want so yeah then we start looking for the property around this region. It's unbelievable. It is. I mean, it's it's extremely beautiful. And you yeah. have really quite a, a spread here nowadays. How long have you been here? A decade or so? Yeah, 10 years yeah. now. Yeah. Yes. So can we describe for the listeners what, what your workshop looks like and what, and what, okay. your, what, your, what your living conditions, what are they like? Yeah, it's kind of silly, silly starting point because this house was very, very cheap. And then that was totally under our budget, and we didn't know why, but basically they possessed. And I don't know if this is, I can talk about this, but people used to grow some super, some dodgy plants. Yes. Crikey. And <laughs> they got arrested, and and then they got this place being repossessed. So this house is actually originally a very old farmhouse, but time to cow shed, pig shed, all sorts of different sort of, you know, era people use it you know, differently. And then we got lots of bizarre outbuilding. But for us makers, it's perfect. So we converted one of pig shed as a metalworking studio. So the, the pig shed is, is yours? Yes, yes. And then the another shed was, I think it's a horse one, is a John's Wood Workshop. Right. 
And the main house is apparently a good 200 years old. And we extended, you know, my husband, woodworker, extended, you know, all the natural material, locally sourced wood. And then it's, yeah, it's double the size now. And then there's a lots of odd small outbuilding, even more. And then we got polytunnel, veg patch, and a bit, little bit garden. Mm. With a newly built cabin where we were in, you can see Irish Sea. So yeah, it's really amazing kind of sort of space. It's not a lot. It, it, it's under acre, but you can do loads with that land actually. Mm. And can we talk about uh, your relationship with metal? This is what the podcast is is about. Um, when did your when did you start working with metal? What is it about metal that particularly appeals? Yeah, so. Metalworking came came into my life as when I was nineteen in Musashino University in Tokyo. That was my first BA I was doing, and then so this university was three D design kind of crafts industrial interior design course all in one. So there was one hundred twenty students, quite a big university. Then all the students divide divided into five groups, and then all kind of rotate into different workshop. So that means that I started uh, wood, I think. So wood, textile, ceramic, uh, metal, and one more, plastic that time. Mm. Actually, that's gone mm. in the course now. But so you rotate the you know, group. And then so you have a sort of a chance to touch and experience all material and then you decide at the end of the second year which course uh, which course do you want to do then the, it's a bizarre thing was metal was the hardest things for me well no i've i've seen a quote saying you you hated it to yeah. be honest so basically it's called the technique called hammer raising which is a sheet metal and then we all students been given uh, about 20 centimeter diameter copper sheet and then gradually raise into the ball shape and then somehow certain angle or sort of a, of a hammering I was doing made it rather it's supposed to be stretch most yeah. of students ended up stretching way too thin and expand the ball but I was opposite it's getting shrinking and getting smaller <laughs> and apparently one in hundred students does it it's kind of a weird angle I don't know why and I was so annoyed and because all the other material was like a yeah sounds very cocky isn't it I got huge respect to ceramicists and grass artists and woodworker but metal was very difficult for me so it's the challenge that you enjoyed yeah it's like a yeah I always say this but like a bit like a boyfriend and girlfriend like a harder to get it's like you want to chase more <laughs> so yeah I got this tendency actually yeah and this technique you have of building uh, aggregates or agglomerations of tiny elements to create a larger whole, wh when did that develop? So that was a really interesting thing about when I was 20, the second year. So I was pretty much decided that I'm definitely doing more making, not industrial design or interior design. I want to be hands-on. And then, but that was interior projects. And then like a, I've been asked to make some sort of a space to be in and then that time I was kind of collecting my favorite e image basically I used to there wasn't internet then so I used to cut 
the magazine article, like image and pictures, and then put edit it into the book and sketchbooks and stuff. And then I realized there's a coherent theme was a lot, exactly like a visual of a group of things, like a lots of fish in a pond or bird in the sky or set of divisions or you know lots of shell coral sort of a, uh, you know a little bit community in the sea stuff like that so then I realized why I drawn to these things and then realized my when my childhood I used to love microscope microscopic mm. sort of a less how do you call it biology lesson I was about 10 or 11 and then my teacher, passionate, very nerdy teacher, he said like a, he noticed I really, really into it. So he said like a, oh, look, like if you scrape inside of your mouth, or like you, if you take your hair or you, or the dirty pond water, you, there's just so many world out, mm. out there, mm. even probably could be bigger than the universe. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So if you go nano, you get more smaller elements as well as you going outward to the universe so I was like wow that's interesting and then the microscope I nicked from my brother <laughs> and happened to he did had he notice it. no he's not that kind of guy so mm-hmm. he, he was very happy about it. then I started collecting pond water and the one day I saw some I, think, I don't know it's egg or something was hatching or dividing some sort of little creature was dividing, and then in my head there was a Ebola virus pandemic that time in Africa, and then I was like, oh, then you see these imagery in a tele, say showing these infinite, you know, viruses propagating quickly. Mm. Then it's spooky, but at the same time, so I got that kind of visual vital power of a propagation. It's almost like an eruption, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's spooky yeah. as well as the, but it's happening to human body all the time. Mm. And then it's a sheer energy, I think, itself to multiply in itself or organisms. So that's coming from that. Then, so basically this interior project is all about, about its microscopic word. And then I created dot, lots of dot. Then I realized that, time yeah that was my core interest because mm, you've described it as the uh, which i rather like the uh, infinite possibility of the growing form i'm still much really questioning about myself like uh, what's the notion of a uh, organic nature like, like if you study nature it's you find lots of geometric mathematic pattern than what human makes and i realize what i my hands created often more organic than nature, which is bizarre. Mm. So I love that often, I hate that word, but juxtaposition <laughs> of or opposite notion almost con- coexisting in my practice is always, yeah, interested in me. Yeah. Can we talk about your background, yeah. Junko? Because you grew up in Yokohama. Yeah. Uh, your mother was a school nurse. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and your father worked in the design team of JVC. Yeah, engineering, like right. a mechanical engineer. So it is, you know, recording gears. He's pretty much aware of, you know, the speakers. And yeah, he used to develop, 
you know, home recording. You know, do you remember VHS? Yeah, v- video players. Yes, yeah, yeah, video yeah, yeah. recorders yes. and stuff. That was pretty much he was involved. So he'd engineer them, he'd work on the guts of them. Is that is that what he yeah, did? Yeah, he used to do that. And so was making, were you making as a child? Were you fixing things? All the time. So when I was little, my parents knew I'm going to be a maker already, age probably seven or right. six. I know. Even she said I was two or three. They knew I'm going to be hands-on. There was a lot of photographic evidence, <laughs> like a very scruffy, tiny girl. It's a bucket and scoop, digging ground and creating muddy kitchens. That was what I used to do. And at age eight, I asked my, you know, Santa Cruz, yeah, exists in Japan as well, <laughs> asked uh, Electric Jigsaw. That was my, I asked them. So I ne- apparently my parents said I never sort of uh, had a tantrum in the toy shop. My brother used to have a Nintendos and game and stuff, but I always asked tools, paper, pen, and stuff like that. And then, so my dad used to be DIY all the time. Right. So he used to make garden furnitures and, you know, painting things. And yeah, so I used to be following him and making So things. you would follow him and presumably he might have thought, particularly at that time, that mm. it would be your brother who would be... Yes, exactly. Yeah. My brother is very academic and it's quite opposite. I was into cooking and making sewing and digging ground. <laughs> And also I used to live with my grandmother and then, yeah, this is interesting because my grandmother in a post-war, um, it's a post-war means before. After. After, sorry. Pre-war. Pre-war. So he, she experienced Second World War and then that generation used to grow, maybe Britain's the same, used to grow vegetables mm. by themselves, used to sew their kimono by themselves. Um, pretty much making was domestically there. And then my mom's generation is uh, possible. So everything became consumer, you know, society. So living with these, you know, with them, like a three-generation house was very influenced me, I think. Mm. I was really lucky because my grandma was make, you know, had, had an allotment and they used to grow vegetables and I loved it. And my mom hated, not hated it, <laughs> like a, you can buy them. Why you grow kind of generation? It's a different generation. And then, yeah, my mom would hate this. Listen, sorry, mom. But anyway, <laughs> and then, but it's not criticism. It's just purely generation things. And things. it was the 80s, you know, that time is money. You know, if you buy it, it's quicker. I think probably the UK was quite similar to Japan or Europe was quite similar to Japan in mm. that sense. Because when I was a child growing up, you know, this notion of food being organic, it was almost like you wanted food to be scientific. You know, yes. I, was, I was fascinated. Things, you know, had to, it was, they were better if they came out of packets because it was somehow more progressive than yes. if they came out of the ground. Yeah, say like a straight and perfect mm. shaped uh, cucumbers and stuff. Uh, my father's parents lived in Nagasaki and then suddenly famous city. And then, yes, they are nuclear, you know, survivor. Right. And then she used to be very... Did they tell you about... That's, I mean, that's really fascinating. Did they used mm. to tell you about surviving? No, that's interesting things. And, yeah, it's, sorry, I might cry. This It's a horrible story. But I, I'd like to people know this because, um, um, yeah, my grandmother had a baby 
that was my uncle, and she was pregnant of my father, and then nuclear bomb happened, and then she kind of in the radio was reporting a few days before Hiroshima happened. So uh, that is uh, that kind of lethal sort of bomb. So so she kind of dashed into the shelter, but she kind of felt something hit on her back, and then then she was waiting. So it, she escaped, and then there was a huge impact, like a storm, noise came, <laughs> apparently a few minutes. And then she, when she came out, that she, her area was a little bit outside of a Nagasaki city centre, so she, she was all right or something. But, yeah, and then unfortunately that my uncle was dead, the baby was dead. So, it, so this story... I didn't know until she passed away. Right. She was very optimistic, always smiling, and then no tea, sweets eater. She didn't have much teas. <laughs> <laughs> and that was all my memory I had. But she, my grandparents never talked about war. Almost did nothing happen before. But this story was a, I'd been told from my, grand, uh, no, my uncle, who is uh, like 15 or 20, uh, 12 years older than my father, so she, he pretty much remember everything, mm. and he, so at the funeral he told me, and her to funeral told me, and then, yeah, it's it's terrible, and that they couldn't have a proper funeral because it was just chaos, that region, um, yeah. So my the sad story on top of that is like my father's baby photograph, not much exists because probably she didn't feel like it. Mm. And then not celebrating. So yeah, my my fa- So if without this uncle, probably my dad didn't exist. I didn't exist, and it's horrible. Mm-hmm. Mm. But anyway, sorry. What was this? No, that's okay. This? We're we're digressing because we were just talking about your your life. But so you're you're interested in food, but also making mm. things, materials. You knew what you wanted to do from quite a young age. It sounds like yes, totally. And I was always. In, Hands on, and these two grandmother was always showing how fun that is in making pickles and sewing things. And so was it because you went to Tokyo to do your um, BAs? We yes. were discussing. Yeah, I mean, when you went there, were you thinking that you wanted to be an industrial designer, or when did the notion of becoming an artist um, emerge? Yeah, that's interesting. Like a. My brother was very academic, always, you know, the, how do you call it, A star? Mm. I don't know, mm-hmm. T- tick everything. So I always probably unconsciously searching what I can do and then what what is the difference and what is, you know, I should have some other elements rather than academic thing. And then so I, yeah, I started to look into it and then uh, pretty much by age 12, I knew I wanted to be an artist. But I've been surrounded by this elite, nerdy, academic, high-achieving friends, and I was definitely an odd one. Now I would start doing the extra, you know, drawing lesson to pass the exam. And then that time I didn't know, you know, crafts or designer or sculpture. And But I, to be really honest, I probably drawing to more fine art. I used to love sculpture, especially Buddhist temple, but you know, Buddha statues mm. and hand curved, ornated 
statue and stuff I used to love. So you were going to do an MA, I think, in Tokyo, but you, you couldn't find a, a place. You ended up working at a fabricator's instead. How did I that know. come about? That's a kind of... So you're fixing boilers and things like that, yeah. right? It's it just a horrible experience. So I, so 1997, I graduated that course, and then that was uh, um, the Japanese bubble economy, the financial crisis was 91. Something yeah. like that. So a few years later, so that was apparently worst recorded empo- uh, employment from our course or something. It's disgusting, actually. No, um, no job. So, but um, then, so hunting job wasn't in my head at all from the beginning. Like all sort of senior students was you know, mourning about it. So let's find or create the job by myself, and then. But so that time, so but hang on a minute, I need more studying. I need to know a little bit more things. And then the crafts course teacher was saying what I made in uh, for degree show was very sculptural. And then sculpture course professor walking, passing by, and he's like, oh, this is brilliant, but what are you doing in the crafts? And so lots of people told me, I'm somewhere between. So you fell between two stools, between perceptions of craft and perceptions of fine art yeah. in that case. And there's so many people, like I said, like, uh, that. now I thought, yeah, maybe I should go, enter Sculpture MA and study that area. It's more suitable because my work wasn't functional. I wasn't believing functional objects equal craft neither, but it's probably easier for me to make what I want in a sculpture course, but it wasn't sculpture. I mean, fine art department in Tokyo Gaidai interview was even more sort of tried to pigeon for me. It was a horrible interview. Like, uh, yeah, you're doing the crafts. It's just, you know, I don't know why you do this like a perfect forging. Why you make this beautiful steel thing? So like, what? <laughs> so it was a... So they were more interested in concept. Is that, was that no what they were concept. after? Or? It's like a... Sculpture is a mass of a form, blah, blah. I don't know. It, it was a, it's still puzzling because all the professor interviewing me was, a, they were sort of almost arguing each other as well. So it's really interesting that my work was kind of triggering the argument. So I felt, to be honest, a little bit good. But at the same time, I knew I'm not going to get in. And then I didn't, which I didn't. And I was like, oh, so... No one want me, or crafts didn't accept me, fine art didn't accept me, so what can I do? Okay, let's be welder. <laughs> so, sounds ridiculous, but I needed money as well. So, and also I used to work a little bit like a day, like a, what's it called? Little part-time job, like a, when it's a school holiday, university you know, holiday time, um, went to this family-run fabricator place and then I really enjoyed it so and they, they pay really well and also they feed me as well okay so they the father was the boss was 70 something years old and son was mid 40 and his wife was doing other men and the two more work so only four men and me and then it start I spent nearly a year oh, it was fantastic it just uh beautiful people like it's a sheer amount of troubleshooting welding almost every day I don't know the hardest job was a, a dismantling boiler tank 
on the 26th floor boiler room on the 38 degree outside temperature. That room was a 40 something degree. Mm. You have to cover on entire body and then gas cutting this massive tank. Oh God, <laughs> it was horrible. And I lost like a one half stone within four days. Um, but anyway, so I love this notion of of you now with all your work in all these top galleries. This notion of you dismantling a boiler <laughs> on the thirty eighth floor in, at forty degree temperature—I yeah. think it's wonderful. But to be honest with you, all these well-known artists make it like a—if you meet these artists at the preview or art fair, we dress up and then socialising. But daily life is wearing you know boiler suits or dangly covered with you know dirt and dust that's uh, my what 95 percent of my life is that what is it you enjoy about welding i've read somewhere that you you find it meditative yeah um to be really honest the the my favorite process is actually forging right it's gorgeous it's like once you gain that um sort of a uh, skill certain amount of skill uh, you almost feel like a hammerhead tip of hammerhead is like an extension of your finger. You can manipulate the hot rod, you know, like almost you pushing cray with your finger. It's almost the same feeling. It's you can manipulate very, very precisely, perfectly. And then you, once you get the level of forging, you feel good. You can do all sorts of shape. Um so forging, I can do now is, you know, obviously you, you need to eat and stuff, but I can, you know, put loud metal music on in my head of all and then two hours, like a goes gone. I find it's very meditative. So like, a, um, yeah, then the welding also, my welding is also repetitive. It's the same process, uh, you know, and when I weld him, I don't, I try, try not to overthink about it. I don't, I don't have, you know, design in front of me to create anything. I just let them grow. So then it's just a little bit offshoot in this conversation. But when I was at Canberra College of Art after welding job, it was brilliant metalworking course. So, you know, I saved the money in Tokyo as a welder. Then I applied to Canberra College of Arts because uh, that time in the 90s, that course creating an amazing bunch of metal worker. Because I'm intrigued, you took this, I would think, enormous leap from Japan, from yep. Tokyo, where you were fixing boilers in 40 yes. degree temperatures, <laughs> to come to London to Campbell World College to do yeah. uh, what, another BA or an MA? Another BA. Another BA. Yeah. Was it the course that attracted you? I mean, you didn't speak any English at the time. So was it the course that attracted you? Yes. And basically how that happened was, obviously, I wanted to study more about arty side of it. It's not just, you know, welding and metal fabricating skill. But that year I gained lots of uh, skill, metal fabricating skill. But um, that time my professor I graduated from, the course professor, he kindly introduced to Hiroshi Suzuki, mm. who is a silversmith, amazing, well-known uh who is running the course now, actually. Yes. He's amazing. And then he... He'd studied at Camberwell. Yes. Yeah. That's right. So that's that connection. So um, so 
saving a little bit of money, and I was in search of uh, learning probably, okay, Japan, probably no one accept me, let's go outside. So I kind of, a few choice, like uh, I love American blacksmith called Albert Paley, uh, blacksmith, amazing guy, and also German blacksmith in scenes, incredible. So there was a few other countries choice, but... Um, when I talking about this uh, to professor, and he said, "Oh, do you know Hiroshi? He used to work uh, study here, and he's in Canberra at the moment. Lond- maybe you can ch- have a chat in London, and then maybe pinch some idea of him. Not necessarily going to the same uni- uh, college. Then I contacted with him at that time, writing proper letter, <laughs> email, <laughs> and then he said, like, oh, welcome, come, come here, and then." He explained, uh, come to when new designers are on because you can cherry pick. The, the, the show that's in Islington that, that yes, showcases still, the, the still new on. graduates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's almost showroom of different courses in UK. So I thought, wow, that's a good idea. Then I went and then that time my favorite was actually Kimball and then in terms of metalwork. And then Edinburgh, Edinburgh College of Arts, still going strong. It's brilliant. So I was like, oh, two choice. And then Hiroshi said, um, yeah, probably strongly influenced me to come to London. Then he said, you can, you know, there's so many library, free museum, you can access all sorts of things. London is brilliant. And then, so that's why I decided. Mm. What did you find the differences were between living in the UK and living in Japan? Huge. Uh, yeah. I mean, even in general or education? Well, or? let's let's go in general first and then okay. maybe we'll hone in on education afterwards. Okay. But we're talking about 20 odd years ago, yeah. 90s. Is, as you know, UK, London changed so much, don't you think? Yeah, well, hugely, hugely in the 90s, yeah. You know, the supermarket selling green tomato, that was shocking to me. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not even right. But anyway, and then, so food, horrible that time. And then I re- hugely regretted that <laughs> And then um, sourcing Japanese food was so expensive. So I missed that. Um, it's very difficult to say. It, it was the beginning when I come here, I was very much suspicious like about this uh, strange United Kingdom, you know, Always, always like almost, almost opposite notion, like opposite people, different type of, you know, idea, different of uh, type of opinion, arguing it all the time, <laughs> and still now look at the Brexit. But anyway, it's it's a difficult one. It's like a lot of people ask me uh, about why you ended up in Britain, and there is like a totally I have love and hate, and then but. Living here made me realize this British people themselves has a love and hate to their own nation. That's absolutely fascinating to me. Like a, not like a blinded nationalistic love. They actually always try to figure out why we are here, but whether not really great food. It's now it's brilliant food, but that time I, I was quite. More you get to know British people, you realize interesting sort of side of a juggling with uh, how, how can I say like a co- imperfection almost like a, nothing really makes sense 
it, lots of people, everyone tried to make uh, sense, but almost everyone knows it's impossible. And then this pub talk and stuff is really irritating, but at the same time, they everyone's tried willing to talk. Um, it's always on the surface. Um, it's not nothing being actually hidden. It's quite, that's why I think Brexit is happening because everyone has loads of opinion about everything. Well, it's quite intriguing. I always feel, and possibly I'm very wrong with this, but there mm. are parallels between the British and the Japanese in that both cultures have a strong sense of heritage mm. and tradition. Both also have this fascination with pop culture. Yeah. And um, and both, and, and you are an exception with this, mm. but neither of them are very good at languages, other people's languages. Yes, I know. <laughs> and I think it's something to do with being an island. Yes. An island culture is amazing what a bit of water yeah. can can do, in in my view. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, let's talk a bit about the, the education mm, system yeah. that, that you found and the differences between the way you were taught in Japan mm. and then the way you were taught at Campbellwell because you had, I mean, some quite revolutionary artists and makers taught you had Hans Stofer was running it I think yes. and uh, uh, not running not running it yeah. but was there yeah. David Clark and yeah. Simone Ten Hompel who's yeah. been on this podcast oh yeah I saw uh, and who's uh, extraordinary yeah. I mean the, yeah they're they're quite they're thinkers all all three of them I all would of it posit. Yeah. yeah oh gosh for all <laughs> sorry everybody <laughs> but the Campbell that time this like a metalworking 90s you know metalworking frontline heroes were teaching me it was a brilliant course and Steve Foran as well um he I mean Bright was running the course and it it, it was almost luxurious to me and um, then the shocking things about difference huge difference between Japanese and uh, British education uh, in my uh, course in Musashi University was a uh, uh, in the assessment, you put finished objects, no sketchbook, no backing up work things, just finish on the table, just all the students work. That's right. it. And then, then they judge, you know, you know, obviously why you made it and then like what sort of technique you used and stuff. Like a, not, yeah, that's how you assess. Mainly like a... So technical development is the more emphasis is weight is on that side. But Campbell, it was totally opposite. <laughs> and I was start banging metal in the studio. And then even I've been stopped. Like, a, you, you know, Hans starts like, Junko, why are you in the studio? Like, we know you can make because you're a welder. You were, you've done another BA. But so why? You just stop and research and think. And then... So I had to battle against, uh, you know, the, you know, the Hans wasn't imposing conceptual design at all. Then he just uh, simply questioned me, and then, then I was like, okay, and then okay, I stop and then think, and then I started going to museum and the library, and then but I paid a huge, you know, tuition fee. So I wanted to use the best of it. So nine to five, stack in the studio, and then. After five, you know, London Institute that time, you can access to other, you know, St. Martin, Chelsea, London College of uh, uh, Printing and Fashion. You could go to their library. So they have a different type of stock of uh, books. And also King's College as well nearby. Um, so 
after, until like they open often eight, till eight o'clock. So I used to go there almost every day. So it was, uh, yeah, amazing. And then finally I got a couple of uh, um, assessment tutorial and then I start. So, okay, I like small assembly, assembly of small components. So why, where that coming from? Then that time I realized that in uh, you know, the childhood memories and branded into my welding sort of experience. And then why metal work? Because, you know, if you compare to other material, it's quite spontaneous. Like uh, if you try to grow cray, soft cray, you have to wait to get dry and stuff like that. And then, but metal is amazing. Even drawing tiny one millimeter wire, but you still can hold in, you know, vertically. It's a strong material as well as actually quite malleable, if you think about it. Um, doesn't snap compared to other material. It's hugely interesting. Like, what can I say? Property of material is very um, strong. Malleability of metal is probably was uh, kind of uh, important for me. So I. They threw the material, you know, why I chose the material, why I ended up that com and a concept. And it, they tried to exp explain verbally about my concept was pretty much through conversation with Hans, actually. Hans constantly asking, why, why, why? <laughs> <laughs> which, which must be interesting because your English was non-existent when you arrived here, right? Yeah, but I went to very intensive language course for six months. I was uh, I joined in this uh, language course from the bottom class. Then I was because I I got like a conditional offer from Kenville. Basically, if you improve, like whether pass uh, English exam at certain level or certification from language school to graduate graduate from the top class. Then I could get in, start the course. So I was desperate. I had to <laughs> develop, improve my English within six months. So I was serious. I was, you know, studying hard for that. I mean, you don't seem to mind putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. In fact, you seem to almost deliberately put yourself in uncomfortable yeah, situations. I am a bit like that. Yeah. I mean, does that relate to your working process as well? Yeah. How? So... Yeah, so that's the interesting thing. I got two kids, and um, I really, it sounds like a Spartan. <laughs> but uh, once you give fork and chopstick to young children, fork is easier. So they keep on using fork, but if they don't have choice, like a Japanese kid, they can use chopstick, chopsticks age at five in general. And then, so... Then I got hint, mm, interesting. So for example, six years old, first elementary school lesson, Japanese calligraphy. And then there's no mess around. You have to sit certain way, the paper, and how to hold in brushes, how much ink you dip it in. Mm. Everything is a formalized standard. Uh, the teachers show this is how, what you have to achieve. And it's that sample of calligraphy is on the blackboard. So you have to practice, practice. Like a ten, and you're, ten, you're six years old when you're doing this. Six or seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then 
people argue about that easily, kind of Western people might think that that's killing the creativity. So how do you define creativity? So is it creativity is about like a British you know, arty thing? It's like a splash the paint and then upside down and get hands dirty, get muddy. Yes, that's creative, creative as well. But this master, like mastering thought and movement, once you've done it, like a Picasso used to be like that one there, and then he went to nuts after. <laughs> and so, so Japanese people are like that. They do formal education first. It seems to be emphasized on that. So they get final like a, how visually aesthetical things to achieve is very good that, that they do. But innovate, it, like a, inventing things is uh, still not as great as, uh, I would say, Britain. Brit- British students invent all mm. sorts of things, aren't they? Do you see yourself, therefore, as something of a hybrid between the two cultures? Yes, yeah. I've been called this British Museum um, curator called me cultural hybrid and I totally do agree mm. because I spent nearly half of my life in UK now and I can see boss influence me so much my roots is definitely Japan but yeah I absolutely adore you know UK and Japan on, on totally equal level now one critic described you as being and I quote fundamentally a blacksmith mm-hmm. is that how you identify yourself Ooh. Yes, yeah, I think so. Yeah, because uh, yeah, but that, but that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, I'm doing this yeah, blacksmith thing. Is uh, again, it's a word, isn't it? At the end of the day, and then how to uh, the notion of craft, blacksmith, silversmith. It's a kind of uh, nature of language, the nature of word. It's like a, the negative side of it. It's actually pigeonholing people. So. It depends on people, isn't it, how to define blacksmith. It depends on the certain people. So in me, um, the origin of my metalworking process is a forging steel. So that's why I think blacksmithing is like almost sole backbone of what I do. But conceptually and all the other put this actually biology, lots of them, mm. and scientific article I read a lot. And my mom comes in from this point. It's a, my mom is a school nurse. So I my Campbell um, dissertation was about how brain works when you're doing repetitive job. And then I discover so much facts, like... Um, Lack of our modern society is the overuse of a big brain, which is uh, um, new information received and stored and juggle handling that, you know, uh, daily basis. And then like, imagine, don't you feel sometimes that I'm looking at um, a smartphone and reading news and article and you're overwhelmed with information, including visual. And then that's, means uh, your frontal brain is uh, working super hard. And then to apparently, unless you're not sleeping, to empty that area, not activate that area, it's apparently repetition. <laughs> so if you start jogging, 
for example, sports, uh, jogging, the fast 10 minutes is hard and you hit the certain point and you, your body get used to it and your brain kind of almost um, release this chemical to make you feel, oh, that's all right. Then about another 30 minutes, you feel actually constant rhythm that repeating the same action of your body. You don't feel that as hard as fast 10 minutes. It's called flow state. And then... Um, and this, I look into that, that it's the same feeling I do get when I'm doing the forging. Sometimes in a very tired day, first 10 minutes ago, why am I blacksmith? Why am I doing this? <laughs> and then, then after that 10 minutes, I just go like, oh, then 45 minutes I forget. And then, wow, 11 o'clock. So already two hours gone. And then I always find it fascinating. The more repetition I do, my fr- head is clear. You know, any practitioner, even musician, uh, sports people, probably could understand physical experience about repetition. I think, you know, it's pretty much uh, missing in our society. People link repetition almost links to boredom and repetition boring kind of thing. But there is something beyond repetition you know, once you your fingers start moving without thinking, because of the repetitive practice, you your brain is the most emptied you ever experience. Often people give up before you get in that point. Same with jogging. Like once you got to overcome that wall, then you will feel good. <laughs> it's ex- yeah. I think it's really difficult to explain people don't make things or but people do other creative things as you know they would probably understand what I'm saying but it's quite interesting because you talk about I've read you talking about the, the key to your work is knowing when to stop yeah <laughs> yeah that, that's another thing so like so I can go carry on carry on carry on adding the components and making loads of big sculpture but um sometimes it, I'm just quite uh totally not conscious apparently it's called flow state like so i'm all not thinking much because my body is became like um, automatic and then when you realize a certain amount of components welded together and then if i look at wow that's beautiful things happening underneath then so let's stop there so that's often that decision is coming from the work itself, not me, not my head at all. That so, does that make sense? Mm. Like, a, so the sh- the assembly of sh- form telling me, please stop, <laughs> almost like that. So, yeah, it's a, often quite recently I made two large steel pieces. I was kind of shouting <laughs> in the studio, yes, they, one of them are incredibly beautiful. Um, that's going to show next month. Um, yeah, so that's things still. I'm still so excited about what I make, which is very lucky because every single object is different. I mean, you are a, a beautiful drawer. I've seen your sketches. They're, they're yeah. amazing. But, but, but you don't draw to make. No. So what role does drawing play in your practice? Yeah, I call it jogging before marathon. So metal work is probably long marathon, welding marathon. 
and then so drawings about practicing how small comp- it's because it's quite spontaneous. It's, you need to just pen on pen, pen, uh, paper, and I just to start sketching, not like propagating shapes and stuff. And then sometimes I do, you know, botanical sort of drawings with pencil, but that's like a more. Uh, I would say, um, it's like a hobby. <laughs> it's not. It's I'm doing that you know, for joy. Like just all like a reference. Collecting references, right? Feature re- yeah. references. So it's not like a directly try to search the outcome at all. It's more to do with a hmm, like a more process rather rather than that searching the outcome. I mean, you you alluded to or you mentioned the fact that you're going to be showing at TFAF in yeah. Maastricht with uh, Adrian Sassoon. Um, I'm wondering what role he and the gallery have played in your career. A huge, yeah. So I'm one of the lucky one. I met Adrian at the Chelsea Crafts Fair. Um, and very interesting because uh, that time I just, it was first time ever exhibitor. And then Crafts Council chosen, uh, uh, Crafts Council gave me funding called Next Move, Next Move. And then... I went to Liverpool Hope University as an artist resident, and then s- six months later, I already was standing this uh, crafts fair, and then Adrian was standing in front of me before opening for some reason. So I never met him, and I didn't know his name and who he was. And then he said, "That one, that one, that one. I really want to have it. And then can you put the red dot? And then I will come back on Wednesday." So then I. Okay, it was even not even nine o'clock opening hour. <laughs> then I saw that he's probably kidding me and he's kind of teasing me. So that's what I thought. And then he, then he, I didn't realize. And then on Wednesday he came back and then, oh, where that wall hanging? I pointed and I sold it. I didn't know you were really actually coming back. <laughs> and then the behind, opposite to my stand, there's a really lovely lady. She was just saying, he's giving the award and oh so that's how I met him and so I I was completely naive if I didn't know who he was and then then after that and then a few months later he said he wanted do you want to sh- exhibit with him and then he was just about dealing with contemporary crafts and then he um you know he's a porcelain expert, antique background, and curator from museums background. So um, I was like, okay. And then, but he he starts selling a lot and then starts like a sort of dominating my income from Adrian's soon gallery. So yeah, so I think, but took for a while I signed signed up with him to do Solar Trader. But we always kind of sort of discuss what I want to do. And he always give me total, utter freedom, what I want to make. He doesn't interfere, interfere that at all. Um, yeah, so obviously without him, I'm not here. And, but, and also he influenced me in many other way because I never sort of look at museum collection as I do now, before, because before I was like, yeah, rare, 
helmet from Roman soldier, great kind of thing. And then I just uh, never fully appreciated museum. Um, then, you know, I kind of bumped into him a few times in the museum and then then he started passionately, passionately explaining things, stuff at exhibition and then it's just quite mind-blowing. So, yeah, and also last November I was attending uh, Salon New York and this is an international interior design fair. Mm. Took a lot of dictating with interior products. And then Adrian's sort of a friend, curator friends invited me to exhibition opening called Making Marvels. Um, not marbles, marvels. <laughs> and like some extraordinary objects from medieval time and stuff. And then... Um, at Met Museum, so it was quite a big thing. <laughs> and then huge exhibition about extremely intricately made objects. Lots of them were even tools, guns and toys and just ornamental things or jewellery, but extraordinary skill, just mind-blowing level. And then I've been surrounded by this huge, you know, hugely important curators and then Sajunko come here and have a look what do you think as a metal worker and then oh and then they start advising me you know Junko just uh, all you got to do is just make what what truly you want to make don't even think about context whatever you just make your own context you just make you know use your space and time and enjoy then that, that I, you know, I, I don't know why it's kind of made me so emotional, because the last year, I was kind of in the search of, you know, I meet career maker, you know, what's the next step? You know, my work is in the museums now, and what is the next step to take? And then these bunch of curator, they are at seventies and stuff, mm. and surrounded, you know, me and telling me that they get. Like a sheer expectation, their face was like, "What are you gonna make next?" Like this, and not pressure at all. It's it's more to the encouragement and the passion they have about stuff, you know, art and you know, human hands can could create in the past and now. Um, I realized I could be the history of it. I got potential to do it, so my heart was. Bump, pumping, weird, isn't it? At the art preview, I f literally felt that. That going home, uh, you know, back hotel, I felt so emotional. So from that November, uh, last November, it's only three, four months ago, yeah, I kind of kicked off with lots of different idea and something I put away in the past because it was t simply too complicated to make. I'm just... It's everything's on the table at the moment. So I had a meeting with Adrian and kind of actually tried to do it. Is that okay? <laughs> so it's going to be quality, the quantity of work will be reduced, but I can guarantee quality and something new I can put on the table in the six months. And Adrian was like, just do it. Fine. 
So I'm very excited about that. Well, I'm intrigued. So we've got a couple of months to wait oh, until something new. No, but it's already started, actually. So November, I made the large two steel pieces. It's just a little bit beyond one of them, definitely. That's going to be short, tefaf. So I'm very, very confident about that. But that was very tricky, super heavy, one of the heaviest and spikiest, so dangerous. Um, but very, very happy uh, outcome. So please check the website. It will be on soon, I think. Well, we will wait for March yes. in Maastricht. Junko, I have a train to catch. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Is it already that It's time? already that time. It's unbelievable. Girl, thank, you um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Regent, thank you so much, Grant. Yeah, my pleasure. And to learn more about Junko's work, go to junkomori.com. If you're interested in purchasing, go to Adrian Sassoon's website, which is adriansassoon.com. There are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us from, and go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials skill craft and design to a whole new audience thanks very much for listening